Businesses across the state are taking a harder look at issues of diversity, inclusion, and equity in the workplace. Today, we speak to an organizational expert and consultant who specializes in DEI issues about what businesses can do to create more welcoming workplaces. I'm Matt Mowry, editor of Business NH Magazine. And I'm Nathan Carroll, founder and president of Cardinal Consulting. And welcome to BizCast NH. Matt, you know what I was thinking about recently? Um, it's sort well, sort of because of our, our guest today and a little bit of his background, but I was thinking about how much technology has changed. Oh. Um, <laughs> like, you know, between last week and this week. Um, but I remember, well, I remember a few things. I remember first my, um, the first computer we had in the house. I'm doing quotes for our, our listeners. <laughs> Air quotes. Um, yes, exactly, James. And, f- and feel free to, to, to laugh at me about all of this. We had a word processor, but it had a screen. So I thought we were the coolest people. Because I could type something out, right, on the screen, and then I could hit, you know, go, and it would print everything from the screen. Thought we were pretty cool, you know? And we've oh, come yeah. a long way. I remember, you know, like, I think my first computer was like a 256 meg or something hard drive at my freshman year in high school. Although, in a conversation we were having earlier, it jogged my memory that in elementary school, we used the Apple IIe. And my favorite program was Delta Drawing. And all you were doing is like, you know, making shapes and the shapes could do other things. And it was, and there was an actual floppy disk. It was really a floppy. Oh, I remember floppy disks. And, you know, it was middle school before I started. Technology was actually introduced into my education (laughs) because I am the wizened elder here. Yes, Yes. I remember being in college too. And my friends were like, Oh, you should try this email. It's really cool. I'm like, why do I need that? I can call you. I'm like, yeah, little did I know. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's amazing to see what my kids just take for granted mm-hmm. now, like their frustration when they might have to fast forward a commercial. And mm-hmm. I'm like, um, try, you know, Saturday morning cartoons. That was the only access you had to cartoons. Right. And you, the, the commercials were your time to race around, get your snack, go to the bathroom, make sure you're back in time for Bugs Bunny coming back. Oh, on. yeah. I'm like, and then, you know, they have their choices of everything. Yeah. They see them on the and they know for and like, they know for days what's going to be on the television because they can just, you know, pull up the guide right. and see. And it was like, well, no, you got to get the, you know, back in the day, it was got to get the newspaper and get the TV guide and see what time that show you want to watch is on you know i always love it when they feel the need to explain technology to me i'm like i know i'm older than you quite a bit but you know who do you think introduced some of this technology our generation (laughs) darn it (laughs) oh my god well another rabbit hole here on bizcast nh um but so let's let's um Let's get to it and see what we can uh, we can dig out of this week's guest about technology and other things, as it were. So, James McKim is an organizational performance speaker, coach, change manager, and author of the best-selling book, The Diversity Factor, Igniting Superior Organizational Performance. He's the current president of the Manchester chapter of the NAACP and now serves as a consultant, facilitator, frequent conference presenter, and guest on radio and television shows, focusing on the topic of organizational performance through diversity. James lives in Gosstown with his wife, Nancy, and daughter, Catherine, where he's an avid tennis player, cross-country skier, and digs singing in a, get this, 
vocals in a jazz band. I love it. James, welcome. Thank you. I think we have a lot of circuitous roots, as it were, to talk about, but we're really uh, excited to have you here to not only learn about uh, more about you, but the efforts that you are undertaking with some partners and some organizations around DEI in New Hampshire. So So happy to be here. Great to have you. So let's dive in here. Um, You know, uh, diversity, equity issues are obviously at the forefront. Businesses are taking it much more seriously than they ever have. But uh, even with good intentions, there are a lot of missteps and landmines that they find themselves stepping in because they are not used to doing as deep a dive as being required now uh, in order to create more equitable workplaces. What are you finding are the biggest challenges that businesses come to you with in this particular area? And what is your advice for them? Well, that's a deep question to start with. (laughs) We dive loaded and dive straight in. So, uh, you know, I think one of the things we have to recognize is that this challenge is at multiple levels. Uh, It's at, first of all, an interpersonal level. So we as individuals interact with different people and we have different reactions to people we encounter. So that's the interpersonal level. But then there's the organizational level. The, the systemic level, if you will, their institutional level, where institutions have policies and procedures that guide how individuals are supposed to pre- operate and behave inside that organization. So at the interpersonal level, uh, the, the real challenge is implicit bias, unconscious implicit bias. And there are over 400 biases that have been identified. And we each exhibit many, many, many of them, Right. So that's the biggest challenge for people in an organization, for people anywhere, is we are biased. I'm biased. Everyone is biased. Um, Recognizing that and admitting that is the the first hurdle we have to overcome, right? If we don't recognize that we have a bias, we can't do anything about it, and we're going to act in ways that we don't even know we're acting, and we don't realize that the way we're acting is potentially offensive to somebody else. So what organizations need to do is to help individuals become less biased, or at least recognize their bias, and give workshops, and I deliver workshops, there are a number of other organizations and people who deliver workshops on implicit bias, and how it manifests. And it manifests through uh, little uh, statements, even, that are referred to as microaggressions. Right? So if I were to say to an Asian American, can you help me with my math work? Well, that's a microaggression because I'm assuming that that Asian American, because all Asian Americans are good at math. <laughs> air quotes. Right? Air quotes, air quotes. <laughs> yes, you got me, you got me. <clears throat> but of course not all Asian Americans are good at math, right? So we're not seeing the person in front of us as an individual. And that's what we need to help have our organizations help us to understand how to see people as an individual, how to value people as an individual. But then you get to the organizational level where the policies and procedures and best practices and culture doesn't allow us to see a person as an individual. It doesn't allow us the time to see a person as an individual. Uh, we're not inclusive and uh, there's a, a big push now toward be- uh, organizations becoming more inclusive and leaders understanding how to be inclusive because that's where the value comes in for an organization is when it's inclusive of all kinds of 
characteristics, people with different characteristics. And we're not just talking about race or gender here. Um, Marilyn Loden from Johns Hopkins in 1991 created what she called the, the diversity wheel. And that diversity wheel describes diversity as a set of characteristics. We as individuals have personalities that are made of multiple characteristics. Race and gender are two of those characteristics, but there are a whole host of those characteristics. And she categorizes first what she called primary characteristics. And those are characteristics of our personality that don't change over our lifetimes or, or change uh, very rarely, like race, like gender, like age. Um, and then there are what she called secondary characteristics, those that do change over our lifetimes but still make up our personality. So our religion, uh, where we are geographically, um, what our income is. Those are characteristics that are more malleable over our lifetimes, but they still make up our personality. So when you look at, in totality, all the characteristics of a person that a person could have, that's what we mean by diversity. We want in our organizations diversity of those characteristics. So organizations that understand, first of all, that there needs to be that diversity, but that's not enough. Just having diverse people doesn't get you the advantages of innovation that comes from multiple ideas. So you have to be inclusive. Managers need to understand how to be inclusive, how to include everyone, whether they're shy or not. Right? So that, that organizational level is the, is the next one we have to deal with. And so organizations are starting to learn, so how do we bring uh, instruction in? How do we bring uh, workshops in that will help our leaders and our individual contributors be inclusive? And then on top of that, inclusive in an equitable way. So we have to recognize that not everyone has the same set of skills. Not everyone has the same set of knowledge. Not everyone has the same experiences. So equitable treatment means we need to recognize where someone's strengths are and where someone's weaknesses are. And as a leader, I need to know those strengths and weaknesses and know when to leverage those strengths and how to support those weaknesses. So a lot of organizations are starting to really wake up to that but not all, and especially in smaller organizations which don't feel they have the resources, the money, or the time to train themselves in how to be inclusive and equitable, they're lagging behind the larger organizations which are having workshops every week on inclusion. I'm delivering some for, for organizations like Vanguard and Kembank uh, and, and Fidelity, and, and they get it. They're really driving because they know that the organizations that are inclusive are going to be more profitable. McKinsey and PwC and all sorts of companies have done studies on that. Hope that answers your question. It's that, so long. But. It was an <laughs> excellent answer. Uh, and I want to explore a, a bit further with your work. Uh, you know, DEI is a very important part of what you do, but it's a part of your consultancy. Can you talk about um, why and how you started your consultancy to help organizations perform better and what that means? And... What are some of the challenges they're coming to you with that they need help with, and particularly this time? Right. So I got into this because I, I started off with my practice when I left Hewlett-Packard, um, wanting to help organizations just get better at alignment of people, process, and technology. That wide range, really strategic planning, right? Um, shortly after I formed the company, George Floyd was murdered, Ahmed Arbery was murdered, and those murders of the summer of 2020 happened. 
And I had already been doing, because of my work in the Episcopal Church, uh, work on racial reconciliation. And it just felt like those two things, that there was an opportunity. I wasn't seeing anybody looking at racial reconciliation and diversity from an organizational perspective. Right? Everyone was looking at it from a social justice perspective. It's the right thing to do because it's morally the right thing to do. But I ran across studies, uh, for the first report from McKinsey back in 2017 I ran across, and it proved that and it looked at race and gender. It didn't look at the other aspects of diversity we were just talking about. It looked at just race and gender and proved that those organizations that focus on it have, in the case of uh, racial diversity, a 21% uh, more likely to, be, to outperform their peers in, in, uh, in terms of financial uh, viability. Uh, with gender, 31% more likely. So that proved to me that th- there was something here and I, as I was talking with people, they didn't know that exists. They didn't know that, that that kind of study existed. They didn't know that they could think about diversity from the bottom line perspective rather than just the social justice perspective. And when I started having conversations with people and that clicked, I said, "This is I need to make a shift. <laughs> I need to focus a little more on, on the diversity aspect rather than the generic strategic uh, planning aspect. What's been interesting, though, is that as I've gotten into this, organizations really do need that strategic planning aspect, that kind of assistance. And it's showing up through this desire to be more inclusive, to work with diversity. So they're they're saying they want to do diversity work, because they're having these problems, right? <laughs> They've got people who are, are saying that their organization doesn't feel like a place where they belong. What that really means is they're not doing a strategic planning effort that is really well-founded and well-grounded in the clients that they're working with and the, the clients they could potentially be working with or the customers they could potentially have. If you think about... Uh, We've heard this term white privilege before, and the word privilege can be a turnoff, and I recognize that, but I go a little bit deeper. I actually use the term and talk about white normativeness. If you think about it, this country is built, products and services are built, expectations are built around the norm being a white male. If you That's go true. into and there's examples everywhere. There's examples right. everywhere. The, right. the example I use is uh, we all we, we, we go into a hotel. We go into our hotel room. We go into our bathroom in the hotel room. What do we expect to see in that bathroom? Well, there's usually complimentary soap, complimentary shampoo. Whose hair was that shampoo made for? Mm. Yep. Right, So that's just an example of the world, the United States, and, and we can talk about internationally, it's really about what's a dominant culture. Right. Right? Well, I remember even growing up, right? You know, you had the crayon box. Yep. And what was a certain color labeled? Flesh. Flesh. Flesh tone. And it was my flesh tone. Right. Um, right. But not anyone else's, you know, mm. is, you know, it, 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 but it, you know, I, I even look at that and go, how much did that feed into my own development and perception right. of the world around me? Right. Or, you know, 
box of band-aids what color were they flesh color Mm band-aids right remember when flesh color band-aids came out in the late 70s early 80s and whose flesh color was that exactly right so we have to recognize that our products and services are our expectations are around being white and that's what causes the uneven playing field for people of color because we have to get over that expectation and that's what also causes the privilege afford it. You can go into, as a white person, a hotel room, and it's expected that the shampoo's going to work for you, right. right? So that's the privilege. I can't go in to a hotel room and expect that, right? So I don't have that privilege. Um, so understanding that, that's what a number of workshops are around, is uh, trying to help people understand that privilege and that inequity And then we get to, I I talked about three levels of discrimination before. We talked about interpersonal and systemic, but then we get to structural, where different systems interact. So housing interacts with healthcare, right? Health interacts with education. Those sectors all interact. So there's at the structural level, different systems combine together to create those inequities and continue those inequities and exacerbate those inequities. So what I'm trying to do is help to expose those inequities and help organizations to see not only inside those organizations what they can do to be more inclusive and better their bottom line, but also how they can help society, how they can help the sectors that they're in so that they will actually enjoy more customers <laughs> in the long run. And how difficult is it, even if an or, or a, a business is open to having this discussion, it's still a collection of people. And the, race is never an easy topic in our country to discuss. Um, but in the climate we're in now, it's uh, you know there's such resistance to how you talk about race. Should you even talk about race? Why are we talking about race? How do you start breaking down those barriers when people might be so determined about their own perceptions that they don't want to hear any other or, or participate in a productive discussion? How do you make sure they are productive, especially when even at our government level, we have bills going through dictating, you know, whether or not you can talk about critical race theory and how you can talk about race and in, in, in our history. It's, it's such a great question. And I have a whole workshop on this, <laughs> <laughs> how to have difficult conversations. Yeah. Um, so we're so taught not to talk about certain topics. We're taught not to talk about race, not to talk about sex, not to talk about religion, not to talk in politi- about politics and polite company, right? So that's so ingrained in us. We have to get out of that. We have to, uh, as we say in, in doing some of this work, get comfortable with discomfort because it's going to take a lot of uncomfortable conversations before we can really get through this. Um, so recognizing that first, having the courage to have difficult conversations is, is a, a place to start. Um, also, and this is something I try to do with the NAACP and anything I do, is to create spaces. We, we talk about creating safe spaces where conversations can happen. Um, I really like uh, Dr. Eric Law's take on this from the Kaleidoscope Institute. 
He says we need to create gracious spaces, which goes beyond just a safe space where you think, well, I can just be and not worry about anything. That's a safe space. But we need people to get out of that safe space and into being, um, into wanting to engage. And wanting to engage means you feel comfortable engaging, mm-hmm. right? Not just comfortable being safe there and being there, but comfortable engaging with others, engaging with these difficult topics, which is where the courage comes in. Courage in an environment that is holding you valued in that conversation. That's when people can come out and have the difficult conversations and they feel like they belong. And studies about belonging say that people feel like they belong when they uh, feel valued, when they feel safe physically, when they feel safe mentally, uh, when they uh, see people around them who look like them, when they have a place, when they feel they have a value, where they feel that they can contribute, they have something to contribute and they're expected to contribute, and where they feel they share values with others around them. So how do we as organizations create that gracious space, that place where people feel like they can belong and bring their authentic selves to work? bringing authentic selves to life. That's how we get into, that's how we deal with the, this, this challenging issue. And it's, it's race, it's gender, it's age, all the isms that come into play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The challenge is really all the same. They just manifest differently. We'll be right back with James McKim. McLean Middleton is a full-service law firm with over 100 attorneys and 25 paralegals throughout its five offices in Manchester, Concord, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Woburn in Boston, Massachusetts. For over 100 years, they've been providing exceptional legal services to businesses, individuals, and nonprofit organizations across the region. Visit McLean.com for a complete list of practice areas and attorneys. We're back with James McKim. Um, I want to uh, spend the rest of our time, James, unpacking maybe a few of the partnerships that you're, you're involved with and, and organizations you're working with. And I think we want to dive into a little bit about who you are as well. But um, most recently, probably in the news for, for our listeners, is um, they've probably, hopefully, heard of um, the partnership between the NAACP and the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund that was launched, um, the Community Driven Economic Empowerment. Can you unpack? that partnership and the benefit it provides to minority-owned businesses. Sure, and that's a mouthful. Though. We call it CDEE for sure. I was like, should I say C or should I just say the whole thing? We say the whole thing here whole on thing. BizCast NH. So yeah, unpack that for us because it sounds like a great partnership with a lot of value. Right. So this actually started uh, as a brainchild of John Hamilton, who was a senior VP at the, the Community Loan Fund. And he and I have got go back to many, many years back when I was really in the technology space, back when I Time when I first met Matt, yes. actually. Uh-huh. Um, and so the notion here is that we, we want a couple of things. First of all, um, people of color don't have access to um, the resources, don't know about the resources mm-hmm. that exist to help build businesses, to build economies. So... One of the goals was to make sure that there's a way that people of color in communities knew about these resources. Even if you know about some of those resources, though, like banks, people of color don't get loans in 
the amount and to the degree that white people get loans because of those inequities we were kind of talking about before, right? right. Mm-hmm. The collateral just mm-hmm. not there. Not to mention the implicit bias that has been built into the systems through redlining and other, um, let's say, behaviors yeah. <laughs> that happened yeah. over time. Sure. So we wanted to create a way that the community could control those resources. And that's what the CDE program is all about, having the community have agency in deciding what resources are going to be brought to these people in the community. Mm -hmm. And the way we do that is partnering with organizations like the SBDC, like Mm -hmm. McLean, like law firms, accounting firms, banks, who provide these resources to businesses. And we we're working with them to make sure they understand the, the, the challenges that people of color face, because they don't. And we are talking earlier about people, organizations not understanding about implicit bias and how to be inclusive, mm. right? right? So we want the program to be the focal point for communities. And it's all community-driven. So we're going to have um, a community a business council that is made up of people in the community, who will decide what partners we will work with and what relationships and what resources will be applied to different places inside the community. Mm -hmm. They're going to decide. We're not going to decide. That council of community members is going to decide. And that's the structure. Is that um, program just based in Manchester, or is it something that can be accessed statewide? It's in Manchester now. Manchester is the pilot area. Okay, great. We wanted to shake out the bugs in that pilot area first Mm -hmm. and then see how we can apply it to the rest of the state. And we've already been thinking about this through uh, the Endowment for Health has the Race and Mm -hmm. Equity series that's been going on. Mm -hmm. So the Economic Development Work Group, uh, which I am a member of, I facilitated a couple of years ago, and Matt's actually on that too, come to think of it. (laughs) (laughs) Ta-da! Ta-da! So the idea with the... um, the collaboration there is we'll shake out the bugs in Manchester mm-hmm. and hopefully through the Race and Equity Series Economic Development Program, look at how can we take that across the state mm-hmm. to different places. And we recognize, you know, Manchester is the biggest city in the state. It's got some unique, unique challenges. It's mm-hmm. not the same as Berlin, right? Right. So <laughs> right. the way the program shakes out in Manchester may not work. It may not even be appropriate for Berlin because mm-hmm. the population may not be there, mm-hmm. but it could be similar to what would work in Nashua mm-hmm. or in, in Portsmouth, right? So the idea absolutely is to, to start one place and try to move it across the state uh, to, to re, um, increase the scope. That's fantastic. Now, yeah. you, um, you mentioned earlier, actually, one of your, um, the, the organizations you partnered with is the Small Business Development Center. Yes. Um, we're going to actually be talking with them in, in, uh, in the SBA in May for Small Business Week, the good, first week good, of May. Good. Um, but now, when you're working with them, is that, that you are providing the training to the, the people who are sort of their, their advisors and frontline folks to build that, um, that understanding of inequities and, and all of that? Is is that kind of the training that's going on there so that they are better informed and can better serve clients? Or so how we, we are such a small state. We are so integrated. <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah. Welcome to New um, Through organizational ignition. Yes. I'm actually working on an inclusivity program for the SBDC. Mm. 
And that program is partially going to be working with the advisors to train them and staff as well mm-hmm. to educate them because they're an organization, just like other organizations. Right, yeah. Um, but also uh, what I'm doing is I, I've, I've built the first list in the state of nonprofit organizations that support people of color. Wow. That awesome. has never existed before. So that list is going to be used by the SBDC. It's going to be used by many other organizations to see how do we build equitable relationships? Mm -hmm. How do we build inclusive relationships across the state? Um, And I'm going to be advising the SBDC on how to actually reach out to these different organizations and people and what the marketing should be and what the communication should be and and, uh, what the services could be. There's so... I think that there's a great opportunity for the advisors to be providing um, services that uh, catalyze more inclusivity in organizations. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something I'm trying to do with a number of associations like the Tech Alliance, mm-hmm. um, the New Hampshire Hospital Association, the Bankers Association, is to say you as a, an association of organizations have mm-hmm. a great opportunity here. You have an opportunity to really move the needle when it comes to inclusivity in the state because they're a group of organizations. And they can say things like, well, we want for the Tech Alliance, we want 90% of our organizations to have a diversity plan by 2023, right? Mm -hmm. And the individual organizations, of course, have to live into that. But the fact that the association has said that Mm – Raises the scope, increases the scope of the impact absolutely. of that work. Yeah, absolutely. That's now, that's awesome. Speaking of lists, I want to talk about another project you've been involved with, uh, and specifically with the NAACP. Um, right. You know, when we talk about New Hampshire and diversity, the you know first thing that comes up is, well, New Hampshire isn't a very diverse state. Mm. You know, it's majority white, but it does kind of undermine the fact that we are becoming a more diverse state. Right, Our diversity right. has been growing over mm-hmm, the years. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's been this struggle to highlight the diversity that we do have. Right, right. Can you talk about the effort of the NAACP in Manchester to highlight um, Black-owned and minority-owned businesses in the area? Sure. So a couple of things came to mind as you were asking the question. Um, first of all, I, I, I want to just highlight that while we are uh, currently an 86.7% white state, Mm -hmm. um, which is um, down from 90 from the last census, um, if you look at individual cities, because everything's local as, uh, who was it? The, the, um, it's like blank. politics. It's every politics, yeah. all every politics is local. There's unpolit- oh, all politics is local. Exactly. <laughs> um, so if you look at Manchester, Manchester has a different demographic makeup than Berlin, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there are over 76 different languages spoken in the Manchester School District. So you don't go to Manchester and say that's predominantly white. In the same sense that you say that the state is 86% white, right? Mm. So much of this notion that we are not a diverse state comes from people who haven't encountered people of color, who don't live in Manchester and uh, run into people of color every day. Amen to that. Right? Yeah, yeah that, is, that is very much it. So your perception of whether we are a diverse state or not comes from where you live, where mm-hmm. you are, where you inhabit every day. Mm-hmm. 
So with that, um, now I'm forgetting the second part of your question. Well, and then <laughs> oh, the, the, the list, the list, list to yeah. highlight. Um, so yeah. we, um, there have been various lists running around the state of, of uh, businesses owned by minorities. And um, I decided about two year, about a year and a half ago that we were going to create one list that was going to be the definitive list. And we got some funding uh, from Citizens Bank to work with uh, the Center for Women in Enterprise to create a list. And that list now resides on our website. And there are 185 or, um, businesses now on that list. And the intent of the list is, A, to raise awareness that these businesses exist, B, to help reach out to them when there's a need, when there's information that they need that they probably won't get any other way because they're not affiliated with the Chamber of Commerce, they're not affiliated with um, the Rotary or Lions Club. Uh, we had this experience, and Dale Moano really brought this out when PPP funding came about. Businesses, People of color weren't even aware that PPP loans were available. And if they did, they had no idea how to get them. They didn't know how to get a DUNS number. They didn't even know what a DUNS number was in many cases. So they needed assistance. So the list is designed to help give those businesses that ass assistance when they need it, how they need it. Awesome. Awesome. Um, before we wrap up today, I do want to, um, you have even said yourself that you had a sort of circuitous route to where you are today. Um, tell us a little bit about your, you know, who you are, where you came from, how you started and, and um, who James McKim is when maybe he's not, you know, immersed with all of these organizations and companies. We'd <laughs> well, love to know that before we wrap. Well, interesting. You were talking about um, your first computer was a word processor. <laughs> uh, when I was in high school, um, we got our first computer and it was a Wang word processor. Now, my word processor was probably a little less sophisticated than yours because I'm a little <laughs> older than you are. Only by a couple of years. Uh, a couple of years. Um, but that was the first computer I got to play with, and I was hooked immediately. Um, I actually created a chess program on that word processor. I just typed, man. <laughs> I was going to say, that's far more than I was ever wow. able to do. <laughs> so uh, that led me to... Come north to Dartmouth because Dartmouth had ah. it was the place where basic the basic language was created. John Kemeny and Tom Kurtz. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually TA'd for John Kemeny, and I took a uh, math thirty eight uh, computer science class with Tom Kurtz, uh, assembler programming. Wow, uh, my sophomore summer. Um, so I was, I was hooked into computers big time, uh, got my degree in computer science and another degree in philosophy. And I, I like to joke that I can explain what a bit and a byte is and I can theorize its existence. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Awesome. <laughs> um, so there's kind of these two parts of my personality. Uh, mm. It's kind of like my son who was uh, a genius at biology, got a 5.0 on his AP exam and he also got his... Uh, um, associate's degree in art. It's like, which one are you wow, going to do? Oh, boy. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I, I went into the computer industry. I started off as a programmer in a small software house up in uh, Bedford, New Hampshire. Uh, moved to Digital Equipment Corporation a few years after that and uh, 
became a, um, back then we were called specialists, consultants, and I traveled the world uh, doing consulting for large companies who were running digital equipment, hardware, and software. Um, and I started getting interested into management and got really fascinated about how technology supports how an organization operates. And so went from a programmer to more of a, um, a strategist around software and systems. And for a number of years, I, I did, did that work. Um, I ended up becoming chief information officer for US First, Dean Kamen's uh, Robotics Competition uh, Foundation. Uh, did that for a few years. Um, Started a couple of companies in the meantime. One was a consulting practice um, that focused on just IT strategic planning. Uh, but the other was, this was a really interesting, uh, a, a colleague of mine, Hugh Magby, came up with the idea for how to track car radios in the 80s. Because he had, he had one of those Jettas, and you know, Jettas were the ones that always had right. the radios that got stolen out of the car. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So he was determined to have a way to track those radios and in fact turn them off huh so we got a bunch of guys together and we actually created a device that was an asset tracking device you could attach it to a radio or to anything and it would track where it was now this was before gps wow so we actually <laughs> used <laughs> pager technology <laughs> hello <laughs> we used pager technology in this device to let people track their assets so that was another company that, that other company that I, I helped to, to build and form. A, a true renaissance, man. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and, absolutely. And, and adding author to it. Can you talk about your latest venture in writing a book? Right. This is this is exciting. This is totally new. You know, you're you're on either the the side of the fence. You're a reader. And then you jump over to the side where you're the author. You see the <laughs> sausage being made <laughs> about how do you write the book. So this book is is kind of a. Uh, a compilation of a lot of things. It, it's that integration, as we talked about before, of understanding how organizations operate, uh, as well as understanding how diversity, equity, and inclusion, inclusion play into how an organization operates. So I'm going to explain what diversity is, what equity is, what inclusion is, what does the definitions of those terms that we throw around, but we don't really think about what they mean. So I'm going to define those and then um, I'm going to take several pages from a book by Kurt Howes uh, that's called Organizational Performance in the 21st Century. And he really breaks down how to get the most organizational performance. But I'm going to talk about, in that framework, how diversity, equity, and inclusion play. Right? So how, from the, a, looking at your sales efforts, diversity, equity, and inclusion plays into that. How from your marketing efforts, how from your finance efforts, how from your research and development efforts, how do diversity, equity, and inclusion play in each of those facets of the organization? And then I'm going to end with, what's your roadmap to organizational performance through diversity? How should you look at setting the tone for your organization? How should you look at uh, setting the goals and objectives, and there are, I've got 19 uh, areas of goals and objectives that, that I look at for an organization to define as they try to achieve performance through diversity. And then the rest is really about change management, and I'm a project manager, so I'm, I'm certified and trained in how to do change management and how to run projects. So I'm going to take people through 
the phases of a change management project to really live into diversity, equity, inclusion, so you have ignited superior organizational performance. When can we <laughs> expect to be able to pick up this book? That book is available for pre-order now on Amazon, and uh, the printing is going to be in early March. And the title? The title, The Diversity Factor, Igniting Superior Organizational Performance. Perfect. What a great way to wrap a great conversation. James McKim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great. And now the buzz with Matt Mowry. Well, I don't need to tell you it's been a rough couple of years and you may be finding it hard to get going on that next dream of yours. Uh, but if you need some inspiration, there's a new book out called Nailing It, How History's Awesome 20-somethings Got It Together. But don't worry, uh, the author, Robert Dylan Schneider has plenty of examples of people at various stages of their lives who had hit walls only to come out the other side uh, with greatness. And so it's a great book to check out, nailing it, how history's awesome 20-somethings got it together. And that's what we're buzzing about this week. Welcome back to the Cardinal Corner. I'm Nathan Carroll. Don't panic. Venmo is not taxing your business revenue. Come on, you know better than this. This is the job of the IRS. <laughs> First, as always, let remi me remind you that I am not an accountant and that you should always seek tax advice from a qualified professional. Now, People have been in a bit of an uproar since Venmo, Venmo changed its reporting thresholds for business profile owners. Here, though, is what you need to understand, ready to dispel some myths, right? Number one, it's not just Venmo. The change in the tax law came via the American Rescue Plan, and it lowered the reporting threshold for business transaction on mobile payment apps, right? Number two, the IRS is not requiring you to report or pay taxes on transactions over $600. Number three, third-party apps are reporting numbers over the threshold to the agency. It's a 1099, it's, not, it's nothing crazy. They're not like tapping your wires at home, it's okay. According to Venmo via their website, for most states, the threshold is $20,000 and 200 payments. If you're in Massachusetts, Maryland, Vermont, Virginia, for all our listeners out there, $600 threshold regardless of the transaction number. Illinois, $1,000 threshold, three or more transactions. So bottom line, if you're a business and you're not already tracking payments that come through a third-party app, shame on you and find a good bookkeeper and accountant. If you're just an average Jane using Venmo to buy your friend a coffee or dinner, nothing to sweat about. Thanks for joining me in the Cardinal Corner. Cash, check, or credit card only, please. Find more at our website, cardinalconsultingnh.com, or on social at cardinalconsultingnh. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard in today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a joint production of Business NH Magazine and Cardinal Consulting. 
Listen to us anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.